Welcome to the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This episode begins with a history lesson on natural farming and the work of Masanabu Fukuoka and leads into a conversation comparing and contrasting that method and his ideas to permaculture, delivered in the voice and words of someone who was present in both movements from the earliest days, the late Larry Korn. Larry lived and studied at Mr. Fukuoka's farm in Japan in the 1970s and was personally responsible for translating The One Straw Revolution into English and getting it published initially by Rodale Press. Larry also studied permaculture with Bill Mollison during one of Bill's first, if not the first, permaculture design courses taught in the United States in the early 1980s, and Larry continued to teach permaculture and natural farming throughout his life. Enjoy this interview with Larry Korn, and I'll join you again after. Let's just start from the beginning. I grew up in Los Angeles in the city, and I didn't have, except for family camping trips, I didn't have too much contact with the outdoors. You know, I was pretty much a normal city kid, and I was always interested in Asia. So when I went to college at Berkeley, I studied Asian studies. After I graduated, I thought, you know, I just want to go over there and see what it's like in Asia. I had no particular plan. It was just for adventure. I took a ship over there, a passenger ship. And after a few months, I happened to meet some people who were involved in the Back to the Land movement, the commune movement in Japan. This is 1970, by the way. So it's like what people were doing in New Mexico and Colorado and, and everywhere, really. And this was the group that was smaller than in the United States, but they were very dedicated and they were definitely on the fringe of Japanese society. And so I ended up hooking up with them and I hitchhiked from one commune to the other. Most of them were in beautiful places way out in the countryside and they were supporting themselves by uh, growing their own food and living like the people were living there hundreds of years ago. And I just fell in love with plants and soil. And everything that I've done for the rest of my life has somehow, in one way or another, been connected with that. And then, along the way, as I was traveling around, I heard about this fellow, Masanobu Fukuoka, who was a farmer living on the small island of Shikoku. And people told me that he's like a farmer philosopher, and people respected him as a spiritual teacher. But nobody I knew had ever been to his farm. So I didn't know anything about the technique. So I hitchhiked over there. And when I saw what was going on and what his fields looked like in the orchard, I pretty much just dropped what I was doing and moved into one of the huts. He was taking student workers, like interns, sort of, who would live up in the orchard in these mud-walled huts and do the farm work. He taught about his technique, and every once in a while he'd sit us down and talk about the philosophy that these techniques were based on. And that was quite an experience, another life-changing experience, and that eventually put me in touch with permaculture. So I got to the Fukuoka Natural Farming first. When I was there, his book, The One Straw Revolution, came out in Japanese. And he was not well known in Japan and in the agricultural community they considered him kind of a kook. 
he didn't plow the ground. He didn't flood his rice fields. He didn't prune the trees. He had a continuous ground cover of white clover on the surface, and he spread straw. He grew vegetables in the spaces between the orchard trees. His fields looked completely different from the other neighbors who had the rice fields with the neat rows and the flooded paddies and who were using all the chemicals. And so he just kind of didn't fit in. And Japanese society is is one that doesn't really treasure individuality as much as they treasure teamwork and cooperation. So here was this one fellow that is, they couldn't understand it, basically. So some of the students and I got together, we translated the One Straw Revolution. I brought it to the United States and found a publisher for it. Somehow I got the book into the hands of Wendell Berry, and he, even though the manuscript was so poorly done because none, we were not professionals, he saw something in it, and he put the book under his wing, and he made sure everything right happened with it. He ended up being the copy editor for Rodale Press. So Wendell and I worked together for about a year and a half to edit the manuscript. And it came out, and it became, uh, right away, a very, very popular book. And since then, it's probably sold a million copies worldwide, and it's been translated into uh, more than 25 languages. I certainly think it's still a popular book, and continue to give copies of it away as gifts, not only for the information about natural farming, but also for the philosophy. Well, the philosophy is the basis of it all, and that's where it's the greatest source of misunderstanding about natural farming is that people look at the farming technique and they go, oh, that's natural farming. It's you don't plow and you grow rice and mandarin oranges, but it's really the philosophy. He had an experience, Mr. Fukuoka had an experience when he was about 25 years old. He was a scientist, a plant pathologist, and he was living in Yokohama at the time. And he had an experience one morning that changed his life and it informed everything that he did for the rest of his life was that one morning when he saw what he described as nature just as it is. And at that moment, he felt that the separation between him and nature disappeared. He was suddenly on the inside he was talking to plants and animals, and everything looked completely different. He said, of course, nature didn't change, but I somehow changed. And natural farming really is seeing the world without going through the filter of the human intellect. We see things and, you know, use discrimination. We discriminate between a tree and the grasses and the ferns. And we start to make evaluations and think that some things are good and some things are bad. We create north, south, east, and west. You know, we create heaven and hell. None of these things exist in nature. So he's asking us to just see the world directly without that overlay. It's really a human-created world. And so natural farming is living in that world where everything is completely interconnected, which, of course, is one of the principles of permaculture is to try to see the world that way instead of separating things like a scientist does into bits and pieces to try to see the whole and to see it in a, from an ecological perspective. Going through this in the 1970s with Mr. Fukuoka, from there, when did you come to permaculture and who did you study with? 
Well, the one-straw revolution came out in the United States in 1978, and permaculture one came out around 1980, and that's when Bill Mollison came to the United States. I was living in Northern California, and he was, it was really exciting when permaculture came and that it integrated everything. The environmental movement was just beginning, and everybody said, oh, there's a better way to do this and a better way to do that. And there were the energy people and the building people and the plants and soil people, and, but everyone was specialized in permaculture made sure that everything was integrated and connected. So to know permaculture, then, for example, I was mainly interested in the plants and soil. Well, I had to learn about building and water management and so forth in order to be able to do a, an integrated design. So people were all excited, and Bill was on a mission to bring permaculture to the world. He had read One Straw Revolution and liked it a lot, and... Fukuoka became like integrated into the permaculture pantheon. And since I'm one of the few people that had traveled and lived at his farm for several years, I came in that way. I actually took Bill Mollison's first course in the United States. It was, I guess, around, it was not, around 1980 or 81. It was in Laurel Canyon in, in Southern California, Los Angeles. And then later, he came right up to the Pacific Northwest because there were so many people interested in permaculture. There was a group that had a newsletter, and people just jumped on permaculture in the Pacific Northwest. So he came up and taught a few courses up there. So I actually took two PDCs, and they were both from Bill. Incidentally, about the Pacific Northwest, the first permaculture convergence was held in Australia in the late 70s. The second one was held at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And Fukuoka Sensei was in the United States traveling around the West Coast. And so he went to that, and he met Bill Mollison, and Wes Jackson was there, and the Mother Earth News was there. It was a big deal. Like 800 people came. So I've kind of been involved with permaculture right off the bat. But I have to say that my first loyalty and is to a natural farming which is different from permaculture. Would you elaborate on some of those differences for me? The main difference comes from a sense of control. And Fukuoka thought that where people go wrong is that they think that they can manipulate nature and improve upon nature for human benefit. And with our limited understanding, of course that's going to create problems. And it's un side effects that s since everything's interconnected and we have a specific objective in mind, then an unexpected problem comes up, a side effect. So we deal with that, and another side effect appears that's worse than the first one. And that keeps happening until we get to the world that we're living in today. Almost all the problems we have are the result of something that we tried and thought was a good idea at the time, and now all the side effects have piled up. We don't even know where to begin. So his idea was, how about not doing this and not doing that? And that was his technique for developing his natural farming, was, well, why are we plowing? I mean, really basic stuff. Why do we flood the rice fields? And can we do it in a more natural way? And he started, instead of adding technique on technique, he peeled back the techniques until he arrived at something that was so simple. It was just, as he put it, 
scattering seeds and spreading straw. But it took him 25 years to arrive at that simplicity. Anyway, the thing was, keep the human decision-making out of the picture. Let nature be the one that's directing. And with permaculture, yes, it's much better than standard organic gardening because it recognizes that things are interconnected and it's all about overlapping functions and needs and everything is tied together. As I see it, anyway, the permaculture, you come to an area and you to apply permaculture and you observe carefully and you see where the sunlight is and how it changes during the year and see where the prevailing winds are and the plants and animals, maybe get a soil study, talk to the neighbors. You get all this information together and then you sit down at a desk and create a design. So that puts the designer in control. The designer is actually creating a design and implementing it. So that's a fundamental difference between permaculture and natural farming. Permaculture is still about control. Natural farming is about giving up control. However, Fukuoka's orchard with his multi-tiered orchard with this riot of ground cover plants and shrubs and vegetables and food producing plants all over the place, that is just about the best example of an edible food forest. So at the end, they look the same. But where they came to that point was a completely opposite direction. And it may seem that, well, if they come to the same point at the end, then what's the difference? And control is just one of the hallmarks of intensive agricultural society. So even though permaculture is so much better, it still is within the mindset of the culture that we live in. It's part of our culture. And Fukuoka's is more a part of, it has much more in common with what the indigenous people were doing before intensive agricultural societies more or less took over. Maybe that was a little more than you were <laughs> shooting for, but... Though there are two different distinct systems, and with that difference between control and not control, you are still supportive of and continue to teach permaculture? You know, I hardly teach permaculture anymore. I do sometimes as a guest speaker, often just to talk about Fukuoka, but I used to teach a lot more. And I would always bring, you know how each permaculture course is different, and a lot of that depends on what the teacher's expertise and what they bring with them. Everybody learns it's the same basic curriculum, plus something that makes that course distinctive. And my courses were, you know, I talked a lot about Fukuoka and his methods. And, you know, after a while, the contradiction became harder and harder for me to take. I love permaculture and the fact that it's there's so many good things about it and now there's an international worldwide organization. People are inspired. A lot of swales are getting dug and trees are being planted and I'm really, really happy about that. But I don't think that ultimately permaculture can have a real profound effect on the direction that we're going because it's it's part of the culture that's doing it. Again, because of the mindset. The agricultural societies, it's not so much people say, well, it's because of agriculture. Everything happened with agriculture. It's true that the technique of agriculture, especially plowed field agriculture, is 
where these societies got their strength and their power, but really those societies, it wasn't about agriculture, it was more about power and control. When I think about these recent societies, so recent means like the last 12,000 years, I think of people that are just like arrogant as can be, that think that they're better than other species, that the world was here just for them. Now, permaculture isn't that extreme, but to me it's still, let's say, it has more in common with that than it does with the way the uh, native people saw the world. Would it be fair to say then that permaculture provides a transitional model from your viewpoint, but it doesn't go far enough? It's not that it's not far enough. It's kind of a leap. You have to take a leap of faith and go from one to the other. It's a kind of a quantum thing. But permaculture definitely puts you closer. But I don't think it's a direct progression. I don't think it goes like, you know, Sir Albert Howard and, and F.H. King, the beginning of organic farming, and J.I. Rodale, and then tree crops are getting better and better, and the plowman's folly. And then you get the much better form of organic farming, that's, which is permaculture. And then that seems to be kind of the end of the road, and the natural farming is not part of that lineage. But still, permaculture does make you more sensitive to your surroundings, and it does put you closer. And I know a number of permaculture people that I can just see that they're evolving in that direction, and their farms are changing as their thinking is changing. So anyway, it's all about personal development and how we see the world as just as individuals. That's one thing I don't understand, why people don't use the permaculture principles, for example, to work on their own character. It seems like it's, it's used mainly as a technique for manipulating the world, and it's not only agriculture, but then, of course, it's used successfully in business and in, for social justice and for all these other things, which is great. But I rarely hear somebody saying, you know, just taking those principles and using it for personal growth. It seems like it's such a natural. It's interesting to try to put this into linear perspective as a younger person who has not gone through all of those things. And I think of a conversation I had with Peter Bain and the distinction in not only our ages, but the developmental experiences that got us through our lives to where we are now and how we arrived at these different thoughts and ideas. That's a very real thing, but it doesn't mean that as a young person that your insights are less valuable than the insights of an older person who's had a lot of experience in the field because there's something about the freshness when you're young. You know, I think that I saw the world most clearly when I was between about 18 and 23 or 24 years old. It was just fresh, and I was just like a childlike. And I could just see exactly what was going on. And, of course, I was idealistic. I went to Berkeley in the late 60s, and idealism was the, was the word. As I got older, I got more experiences. I got more wisdom. But I lost the spontaneity and the clarity. So it's a trade-off. And we need all of these different perspectives. I was teaching a permaculture class in Eugene a couple of years ago, and this one fellow who was always walking around with bare feet and playing the guitar, and he was a 
I mean, a neat guy, maybe 20, and he would always sit up in the trees and stuff. It was one day when he said he was just off on a bench. He was so frustrated. He could see it. He could see how people, if they lived in trees and if they had communities like this, and he was trying to explain that to us. And it was a little nutty, but I was just so grateful because he reminded me of the things that I was able to see then that I couldn't see when I was, you know, 60. So we need both. And I just wonder, thinking about people who I know of in the Pacific Northwest who are teaching permaculture to children, if there's some kind of a multi-generational progression to this as permaculture is taught more widely and to people at younger and younger ages at that stage where at that stage where they really see the world in that way as compared to say someone like myself who came to permaculture much later in life but rather people who always saw the world clearly and through this permaculture lens if that will help take us closer and closer to a world where permaculture and ultimately natural farming and that rather than being something that we accept as a practice, it just is. It's a part of ourselves and our culture. Yeah, becomes the practice. I think boy, we've got this whole push-pull thing. We have the people who are still kind of buying into the basic greedy attitude of me first and I'm better. And then we've got people like uh, the people who were working their whole lives for world peace and for social justice and for permaculture. So certainly teaching the kids is great. And I just wonder how we can get to a place, see the that kind of greedy attitude part of our society, that unfortunately has always been the dominant force. And while the permaculture people and the and the peace people have always been there, and the people that lived in, in villages and did small farming and felt very local and took care of their land and, and didn't just try to take from nature, how can we get our group to become the dominant group? And I don't know. Or maybe we just have to create what will become the new society after the current society simply falls under the weight of its own contradictions. I don't know the answer to these questions, but these are all things that have occurred to me, and I'm just in the same boat as everybody else once it comes to dealing with this culture, which is based on a world that's created by the human intellect, and it's a kooky world. Nothing makes sense. There's no port of reference, and I'm just as lost as anybody else as far as knowing what's best to do. Your comment about the world created by the human intellect makes me think about environmental education and how that discipline, that curriculum, is about reintroducing emotion into the conversation so that it's not as intellectualized, that those feelings, those passions, our culture matter in the way that we view the world. And to be able to take all that minutiae and these tiny details that science creates and then recombine them into a story that is human in scale, and that by 
having these kinds of conversations and looking at these types of questions that we can look beyond just the data and information or having a job that just pays us enough to find these passions and interests that really move us and motivate us. And it goes back to the conversation that we had before we started the interview and caring for the things that you do and loving what it is that matters to you and making the choice to follow that. You know, science can analyze the world and break it into bits and pieces, but then it can't put it back together again. So what you're describing is more of a vision where you see things as being interconnected and as a whole instead of the parts. And I couldn't agree more that that's a very valuable insight. And that kind of stirs the kettle a little bit more when we look at our society and go, how are we going to get there? Fukuoka worked his whole life. I mean, he woke up in the morning, a short fellow, I don't think he was five feet tall. He might have weighed 100 pounds, and he was so full of energy. And he'd wake up in the morning, and he was thinking, okay, how can I help the world see what I saw that morning? Every morning he woke up like that. And he wanted to fill the day, and he lived to be 95 years old. and towards the last five or six years of his life, he started to become a little sad and a little cynical because not much had changed. And in fact, they have gained momentum. And still, there's only so much that one person can do and you just have to make your choices about what you do in life. But what we talked about just before the interview started was that, boy, if you get wrapped up in all the things that are wrong and the... the maybe hopeless situation that we seem to find ourselves in and you get depressed and you start to feel guilty and then suddenly you lose all energy, the possible energy that you could have had to help change things. And also, isn't it nicer if you're enjoying every day and enjoying life? You know, Wendell Berry has a line, our challenge is to live joyously each day in spite of knowing the situation or something very close to that. It's like, okay, you can have more fun and you can actually be much more effective if you somehow find a niche. Now, for me, I was just so totally lucky in my life that I happened to come to Fukuoka's farm at the, the right time. And at the time, I could speak Japanese. I had already been doing farming. I was perfectly prepared to do what I did, it was total luck, and my life took a real side turn. And for you, the same kind of thing happened in a different way. But what you noticed was that you knew when you had found a good spot for you when you started feeling happy. So, no, I just wish that for everyone. That you, somewhere, And usually, now this is going to really sound corny, but, you know, the way that that happens more often in somebody's life is if you can somehow manage to keep your heart pure. I know that sounds a little flaky, but, well, here's where I can pull the age card and say, I've seen a lot by now, and I know that to be true. This reminds me of two different lines I've heard throughout my life. The first is that we need a calling rather than a career that, yes, we need to work a job, we need to have income and everything we need to live in this world, but if we have some kind of ideal that drives us, or something we just really care about, 
that it allows us to keep going regardless of where we find ourselves. And the other is to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, because, as you were saying, you know, if we detail out all of the negative reasons for why we can't do something or it's going to be difficult, we may use that as a reason to never take another step towards something we care about or that matters to us. That's beautifully said. Now, one thing I've noticed when I'm teaching permaculture, at the end of each course, many classes, and we did this, put out a questionnaire, and one of the questions was, what drew you to take a permaculture course? And, you know, the younger people said things like that they just felt like they had no path in life and that they wanted to get skills to make a positive contribution to society. And the older people said, I feel like everything I've done up until now has been pretty much meaningless, and I want to put meaning in my life. And then when they come into the class, a lot of them have been kind of driven there by a feeling that somehow they have caused or they've contributed to the bad place that the world is in today. And this kind of guilt is also debilitating. They didn't create this. This has been going on. This is momentum for 12,000 years. And somehow people have to get over their personal guilt and shame about it. And ultimately, the key to all of this is that people just have to learn to love themselves. That's going to be different for each person. And I'm saying that you could use the permaculture or the natural farming. You could actually use those tools to help to arrive at that place. And, you know, I was saying that, you know how Fukuoka went from the outside suddenly to find himself on the inside? One of the most important keys to doing it, you can't think your way in there. You can't figure it out. That's what's keeping you out, essentially. But one way is the love thing. Love ultimately is at the basis of everything. And when you see that, that's the quickest way to establish a connection with the inside and to go there. You put that so succinctly. Well, of course. I'm an old hippie. Love is all you need. It took me 16 years to find that kind of love for myself and these things that I enjoy in order to be able to step back from that societal story and do the things that I really love. And then sometimes I've had problems with this before. If you're successful, then, oh, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. People are starving in Africa. How can I be feeling good? I shouldn't be feeling good. I should be feeling guilty. And I don't think that's a helpful thought process there. But still, that was actually probably my main thing that I had to overcome in my development on that, was to realize that it's, it's not about deserving or not. It's There are ways to sabotage yourself when you're actually making progress along the road. And you go, oh, well... <laughs> I don't deserve it. And do you have any final words for the listeners? Well, I would suggest that people look into what the indigenous people were doing before the agricultural societies pretty much erased them. In particular, I'm more familiar with California because that's where I grew up. But what the indigenous people were doing was not do nothing farming, and neither was what Fukuoka was doing was not do nothing. They interacted with the landscape. They were a part of it. They asked the plants what they needed. They never took more than they needed. 
They never took it all. They watched out for making sure that nature would be able to replenish itself. And this made actually made the landscape richer and more diverse, not only for people, but for all the forms of life. And Fukuoka's farming is much more closely attuned to that way of seeing the world and that way of interacting with nature. So it's just another way of getting at it because it's Asia. People are familiar with rice. They're not familiar with a lot of the terms that he uses, like no mind and do nothing. So it may be going about it, coming at it through what the indigenous people were doing. And there is one book, by the way, that it's by far the best book ever written on the subject of the way Native people lived and especially interacted with nature. And that is a book called Tending the Wild by Kat Anderson. If anybody is interested in that topic, that would be, that is a great place to start. And that was Larry Korn in a conversation we originally recorded in 2013. Larry passed away in November 2019, but his life and legacy live on in his translations of The One Straw Revolution and Sowing Seeds in the Desert, as well as his own book, Examining the Life and Philosophy of Masanabu Fukuoka, The One Straw Revolutionary, released in 2015 with Chelsea Green Publishing. He also left an indelible impression on the thousands of people he personally influenced through his teaching, friendship, and mentoring. I feel fortunate to count myself among that latter group, as Larry checked in with me over the years to continue the conversation you heard today. While his influence continues on air, as my path led ever more towards starting with designing ourselves and our lifestyles before moving out into the landscape or in the broad conversations about philosophy and ethics during an interview, while leaving recommendations where you could find more specific resources that focused on strategies and techniques. The One Straw Revolution remains the first book I recommend every new permaculture practitioner reads before moving on to any of the other permaculture texts. You can read more about that book and the rest of my initial reading list at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash firstreads to see why this book matters and other titles to deepen your knowledge. Are there any permaculture practitioners who influenced you early on in your journey that you still find reflected in your everyday practice? Let me know who that was and how they changed your thoughts at that time and continue to do so today by leaving a comment for this episode. While you're at thepermaculturepodcast.com, take some time to explore the archives. There you'll have access to nearly 200 episodes from the early days of the show that you won't find anywhere else. Until the next time, remember your teachers and mentors while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>